Good morning, everyone. My name is Kim G. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Um, for those of you who don't know me, um, I have been in OA since 1994, um, and I have been recovered and abstinent for the last eight years, so there's a little bit of a gap. You can see there, um, I, um, my top weight was a size 24. I, um, I then got down to a size two, where I actually lost my menstrual cycle and uh, also was losing my hair. But I've, and I've also been bulimic, being at the same size I am now, but binging and purging and over-exercising. So I have experienced all aspects of this disease. Um, so what was different eight years ago? The big thing for me was I realized that I didn't know what step one was. You know, for years in OA, um, we started a lot of our meetings saying, is there anyone else here who is a compulsive overeater besides myself? And I would raise my hand. And what I realize now is what I was raising my hand to was I'm fat and I don't want to be fat anymore, or I'm no longer fat and I don't want to get fat again. So this, this uh, step one workshop we have once a month, this is, was critical. I had to understand what I suffered from because the urgency that I did the rest of the steps was determined by how much I understood step one. Um, so we're gonna kinda, me and Claire, kinda gonna go over different concepts here. So the doctor's opinion is the first chapter. This is the chapter that gives me the diagnosis of what a real compulsive overeater is. Um, I have a two-fold nature. I have an allergy of the body and I have a mental obsession. Now. Two-thirds of Americans um, from statistics are, are obese. I don't think that two-thirds of Americans are compulsive overeaters. A lot of people will compulsively overeat in order to and be fat, but it doesn't mean they're a compulsive overeater. So I have to have these two qualities. The doctor started to notice there were different types of alcoholics, and what he estimated of all the alcoholics he was treating, only about 10% of them were of the hopeless variety. We're going to see words in this book like the hopeless variety, an allergy, uh, alcoholic of my type, chronically alcoholic, as seriously alcoholic as I am. That's what the 12-step programs are geared toward. This is, this is not a diet program um, because I have, a, I have a, a news flash for you guys. Diets do work. You know, you decrease your calories, you increase your exercise, you will lose weight. If you have this twofold illness, I have a feeling my experience is those, those type of diets will fail you utterly. So the first thing they talk about is having this allergy. Um, in the doctor's opinion, uh, the, second, the second page of that, because I know people have a bunch of different pages for that, Dr. Silkworth writes a letter and Bill intercedes after the first letter and says, we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. So the alcoholic torture does describe the interaction of the allergy of the body and the mental twist. It does not, they're not talking about the to torture of being 500 pounds or being 40 pounds underweight or, or uh, you know, binging and purging. They're talking about the actual interaction of what makes us a compulsive overeater. And I must believe my body is different than other people. And it says at the end of that paragraph, in our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. Okay, so uh, it, there, <clears throat> excuse me. The second part of it, actually, let's, let's stay on that for a minute. So what does it mean to have an allergy? You know, I, I think of the conventional um, description where, you know, you eat, certain, eat something or you're exposed to some antigen and you start to break out in a rash and your eyes get watery and you start sneezing. 
that didn't make sense to me because I could eat enough pasta for a family of 10. I'm not having any kind of those symptoms. What I learned through this doctor's opinion is an allergy is simply an abnormal, exaggerated reaction to a substance. What I didn't understand was the fact that the fact that I could eat enough pasta for a family of 10 was not normal. That was an indication I had the allergy. So just the same way, if I have know someone that has an allergy to strawberries and they break out in a rash, I don't think they're a bad person because they have that allergy. But if they continue to eat strawberries knowing they break out in a rash, I do think they're crazy. So I am not a bad person because I have this allergy. But the insanity is knowing once I'm educated that I have the allergy and I continue to partake in that, that substance, that's insane. And that's the interaction of the allergy of the body, obsession of the mind. I have this allergy which I cannot control. It's a bodily function. But the, but the insanity, the powerlessness is I have this mind that tells me this time will be different. So what is that reaction? They talk about men and women drink essentially because they get an effect produced by alcohol, an effect that other people don't get. You know, do you ever hear people talking about food being too sweet or too, you know, it's too rich? Like, I don't get that because my reaction is different. When I ingest certain substances, the first couple bites are, oh, I get an overall feeling from it. But what happens is that feeling starts to intensify and then I'm starting to eat more and more. And the more that I eat, the more that I want. And the more that I want, the more that I eat. And the more that I want, the more that I eat. And it's this cycle because my body is telling me it has to have more and more. That's not the sensation that normal eaters get. So I have to look at, now you walk into an AA meeting and you know what sobriety means. You know you cannot have alcohol. In OA, we have, all have the same definition of abstinence. We have to abstain from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors while working towards or maintaining a healthy body weight. That's the world service definition. I personally find it um, helpful to get even more specific. What are those foods? What are those ingredients? And what are those behaviors that create that phenomenon of craving? That, that inability to have stop, that, that, that that trigger that makes me want more and more and more. And one of the ways I heard it described beautifully was what are those foods that I negotiate, barter, and would grieve over if I never had before again? When you go to an all-you-can-eat buffet, what are those foods that you never even notice? And what are those foods that you panic or even get angry because they're running out of? If you're going to go food shopping, what are those aisles that you've memorized and what are those aisles you don't even know where they're at? It is a little bit more investigative, but once we determine what they are, we are the same as the alcoholic. I remember hearing, you know, in the rooms, and I believed it too, like, I wish I was an alcoholic. They just have to not drink. I have to eat every day. I have to let the tiger out of the cage three times a day. That's not true. Alcoholics drink. They drink water. They drink tea. They drink orange juice. They do not drink alcohol. I eat every day. I do not eat my binge foods. It is not a tiger that I take out of the cage because I have neutrality around the food because of these steps. So I have to look, look at that. So let's think about that effect a little bit more. If it really is that I just like food, because food is so wonderful, and I remember you know, hearing, thinking that in the beginning too, I always use the example of pizza for me because pizza it was one of my favorite binge foods. So what I would do is I would buy a pie of pizza and I would have my two slices and say, I'm not going to have any more. 
and I would put it in this refrigerator, and then two o'clock in the morning I would get up and I'd eat the rest of the pizza. And then I'd be like, okay, I can't be doing this, so I'm, I wrap the, you know, the, the leftover pizza, I put it in, in tinfoil and I throw it in the trash, I'm not gonna eat it this time. And then two o'clock in the morning I get up and I go into the trash and I eat the pizza. And then I'm like, I really, really can't be doing this. So I have my two slices, I put the rest of the pizza in the trash without tinfoil around it, and I still wake up two o'clock in the morning and I pull out the pizza, wipe off the other, the other trash and I eat the pizza. And then I'm really, really desperate. I'm like, I cannot do this. So what I do is I have my two slices, I put it in the, the, the refrigerator, and I mean, I put Ajax on it and I throw it in the trash. And I still wake up two o'clock in the morning, morning crying. And I go in there and I try to wake off the Ajax and I still eat the pizza. Mm -hmm. It can't be that I like pizza that much. Mm -hmm. There is something else going on. There is an effect that I get from this food. So how many of you have eaten food when it's stale, when it's raw, when it's frozen? It can't be that we just like this food. You know, icing was another big one for me. When I had a bad day at work, I would hit a grocery store and I could feel the relaxation in my shoulders when I had the icing in my cart. That's how powerful the food was. I hadn't even ingested it yet, but I could feel my shoulders relaxing. Um, and there's a line in Bill's story that says that alcohol was my master. One of the things I really saw with this interaction of the allergy of the body and the mental twist was that food made every decision in my life whether I was abstinent or not. If I was in the food, the way I went to work was to hit all those fast food joints. If I was abstinent, I had to avoid all those fast food joints. If I was in the food, every social occasion was made by, who, um, by what food was being served there. Every babysitting job was determined by what was in their pantry, not what their kids were like. And if I was abstinent, then I had to have, every social situation was determined by what food wasn't going to be there. What babysit job was, I was what was in their pantry, I couldn't, I couldn't take that job because I knew I couldn't be around it. So food was making every decision of my life at that point. But if that was really my problem, then, re, then rehabs would kick out 100% recovery. Because what they do is they physically remove you from the drugs, the alcohol, whatever your substance is, and they can sit you down and have a rational conversation and say, don't do that. I'm a kid of the 80s. Nancy Reagan's Just Say No would have worked if I simply had a food problem. So I often heard someone say, if you have a food problem, then when the bag of Doritos is empty, your problem is over. If you're a compulsive overeater, when you finish that bag of Doritos, your problems have just begun. Because my real problem is when I'm not eating. I get restless, I get irritable, I get discontent, I'm uncomfortable in my own skin. My real problem is sobriety. My real problem is I don't know how to deal with life and everything, you know, the way I describe it is life gets loud. And the longer I'm abstinent, the louder life gets and the only way I know how to shut it up is to eat. So if I can't eat safely because of the allergy and I can't be abstinent contently, because of the mental twist, I am a compulsive overeater and I'm screwed. And it was when I truly internalized that message that suddenly being in a 12-step program, I realized the 12 steps were necessary. That just calling my sponsor and telling her what I was gonna eat was not gonna be enough. Everything's okay? Awesome, thank you. Um, 
So the big book is, in, in doctor's opinion specifically, is going to talk to us about the fact that we have to have the food down in order to address the larger aspect of our disease. I often use this analogy. I am, I had broke my ankle really bad about, um, about eight years ago, and I had slipped in the, in, in, the, um, in the snow, and I broke the outer bone in half, and my foot, foot flipped 180 degrees, and I ripped every muscle and tendon in my ankle. And the doctor explained to me that my, my um, injury was twofold, broken bone and muscles. He explained to me the larger part of my problem was the muscles and the tendons, and that was going to determine whether I was going to be able to walk again. But I had to get that bone fixed first. So the next day I had surgery, I had screws and plates put in my ankle, explaining that I had to have that stable in order for me to work on the larger aspect of my injury, which was the muscles and the tendons. I didn't have the option to say, listen, surgery scares me. I had never had surgery in my life. Surgery scares me. Let's work on those muscles and the t those tendons, and then we'll work on the bone. That's the same thing here. We have to be food sober to have the mental acumen to attack the mental twist. So I'm going to show you different places in the doctor's opinion. It's going to slam that home, and it's throughout the big book. But if you are in the fourth edition, it's on XXVI. If you're in the smaller edition, it's XXII. The last two lines on that page, it says, more often than not, it is imperative, imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached, as he has a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. The bottom of that same page the next page, of course an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor before, and this often requires a definite hospital stay, before psychological measure, measures can be of maximum benefit. Even on page um, XXXI in the fourth edition or XXVII in the smaller book, Dr. Silkworth says, what is the solution? And he can't even describe it. He can't even tell people what the solution is. What he does instead is gives two examples of patients of his that had this spiritual awakening. And in the first paragraph, it talks about following the elimination of alcohol. Then he accepted the plan of the book. The next example says, following his physical rehabilitation, he became sold on the ideas in this book. So it's letting us know over and over again that the food has to be down in order for us to, to, uh, to accept this solution. Um, so the last thing is we cannot differentiate the true from the false. Our alcoholic life is the only normal one. That's why we need the help of a recovered person. We need, we need the help because, um, one second. Suzanne? There's, 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 um, there's, there's uh, chairs in that back room if anyone wants to get some extra chairs. There's, there's lots of chairs back there in that back room, yeah. Thank you. Um, so I always like to use this example. I, I had a guy that I, that I, from my high school, and I remember being in, it was Algebra two trig class, and the teacher had all these different colored um, chalk, and he was drawing all these colors, and I could see Joe getting really like frustrated and everything, and finally he raised his hand and said, I forget the teacher's name, but like, I'm totally colorblind. I don't know what you're talking about when you say red line, blue line. And I was like, wow. So I talked to him afterwards, and he only sees shades of gray. And I went to Catholic school, and he showed me on the back, because he had to wear a shirt and a tie. On the back of his tie, it said the word red. And on the back of his shirt, it said the word white. 
and he had to memorize what colors matched because otherwise he didn't know what purple, he didn't know purple and yellow didn't go together. And it was the 80s, so he probably could have gotten away with it. But so he had to have, and when I asked him what I said, well, how did you, well, anyways, he, he said he didn't even know he had this problem until he went into kindergarten because he didn't, he assumed the whole world saw like he did. And when he started coloring the, the sky purple and the grass yellow, the teacher started to key on and maybe this kid isn't seeing colors. So that's what happens when I don't know how what normal is. I assume everyone experiences food the way that I do. And I have to tell you, this gentleman wound up being a, a politician. I used to see him on TV shows, I mean, like on commercials. And I used to think to myself, and he would be in a shirt and tie. And I'm thinking, I wonder if there's still a little label on the back that says red and blue, because he never, he's never going to grow out of that. And I remember saying to him, because this was when you know, I, was, I was a junior, so we were starting to get our, our driver's license. And I said to him, I said, well, how do you know a red light from a green light at night? And he said, Kim, that's not the scary part. I don't know a street light from a traffic light at night. And that's what I have to recognize is that I have this permanent allergy and this permanent um, mental twist. I have solutions to it, but this isn't something we graduate from. I don't grow out of the allergy and I don't grow out of the mental twist. I have to address both of them the same way this guy is a totally functioning gentleman, but he knows his limitations because he's colorblind. I have to know my limitations because I suffer from the allergy of the body and the mental twist. So the, the doctor's opinion tells us the only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. The only way I'm not going to experience the allergy is by not ingesting those substances. And it also talks about that pattern of over and over again. I'm going to succumb over and over again. And the only chance that you have is an entire psychic change. An entire psychic change is doing steps 1 through 12 and then living that step as a daily way of life. So the solution for the allergy is entire abstinence, and the solution for the mental twist is an entire psychic change. So let's move in. I'm going to go a little over some stuff in, in more, uh, and there is a solution. So when there's a solution, you know, a big part of knowing who I am is knowing who I am not. So like I said, everybody who's fat is not a compulsive overeater. Everyone who's thin doesn't mean they're not a compulsive overeater, too. So if we go to page 20, they talk about these um, questions, the second full paragraph. How many times have people said to us? So these are not questions that I would ask you as a fellow compulsive overeater. These are the questions of people who don't have our problem, who aren't experiencing life. The way I describe it is people are looking at me and seeing what the food is doing to me, and they don't understand why I'm doing it. I know what the food is doing for me, and I just can't understand why they're not doing it. So the questions they're going to ask me is, I can take it or leave it alone. Why can't you? Why don't you eat like a lady? You can't handle your liquor. Why don't you try beer and wine? Lay off the hard stuff. You know, eat diabetic candy. Just cut it in half. You know, eat organic. You know, um, just have it once a month if it, you know, to treat yourself. Um, his willpower must be weak. He could stop if he wanted to. She's such a sweet girl. I should think he should stop for her sake. The doctor told me he would ever drink again. It would kill him, but there he is all lit up again. Kim, you want to go to the prom? If you lose a little weight, a guy might ask you to the prom. You know, I remember I have my best friend's a doctor, and she had called me one time because she had a patient that was like 450 pounds. 
diabetic, was losing some toes, was having them cut off the next day, and she went in to, to visit, visit the patient, and she was in there eating cheesecake with her family, and she just couldn't believe she was doing it. What my alcoholic brain said was, well, she's losing the toes anyways. Why not enjoy the cheesecake? <laughs> like, that's the thinking that I have that is being butted up against a doctor who says, my God, look at the consequences this woman's going through. Why is she still doing it? So the moderate drinker is the person who can take it or leave it alone. So for example, I do not have a problem with shopping. So I hear people complain about Costco all the time, spend so much money there, and my brain says, well, why don't you just make a list and don't buy anything off the list when you go to Costco? Or set a dollar amount, say you're not gonna spend anything over $100 when you go into Costco. Or if you're really having a hard time at Costco, just go to Costco every other month. And that makes total sense to me because I am a moderate shopper. I can take it or leave it alone. But if I think about it, isn't that what the people who love me have told me? Kim, just write your food down and don't eat off of that. I was told that in OA. Just write your food down and it should be okay. By some people who love me who were probably not real compulsive overeaters in the room and were telling me what worked for them. I was, you know, what does Weight Watchers tell us? Set your point level and don't eat above your points. Just the same thing with dollar amount. Or Kim, if you really, really have a problem with, with, uh, with pizza, just have pizza every other month. And I look at them like they're nuts because I can't do that because I'm the real compulsive overeater, but I'm the moderate shopper. And then they talk about the hard drinker. The hard drinker is someone who may even be one of our binge buddies, right? But they get the diagnosis of diabetes and they just stop and change their life around. Their husband threatens to leave them because they gained weight and they lose the weight. And I don't understand why I can't do that. Now my opinion is we have a lot of hard drinkers and overeaters anonymous. And my opinion, which we'll go over, is that's where a lot of these sayings come in. You know, remember your last drunk. Think the drink through. I mean, that works for the hard eater. Personally, I am a hard drinker. I didn't drink till college. I drank alcoholically for 10 years. If I went into an AA meeting, I can tell a good AA story consequences-wise. But I was drinking and driving one night in Cherry Hill to Pensalkin and went the wrong way on Route 130 and almost killed me and a friend, and I stopped drinking. I was scared to death. Now, if I had been stopped by the cops that night or any other night I drank and drove, I'm embarrassed to say, the cops would have told me I was an alcoholic. The cops would have sentenced me to AA meetings. And in a contemporary AA meeting that says, don't drink, go to meetings, put the plug in the jug, I would have been successful. Why? Because I'm not an alcoholic. So I have to know, am I a moderate eater? Am I a heavy eater? If, not, if I am, then I don't need a 12-step program. Welcome in a 12-step program. Please don't sponsor someone like me because you'll probably kill me with the message that you have. But I, uh, this, this, this fellowship was made for the real compulsive overeater, this person who cannot stop because of the consequences and the person who cannot leave it alone. So let's look at page 24, and it's going to talk about what it means to be a real compulsive overeater, that first paragraph. It says, the fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice. How many of us say our drug of choice? Well, if it is a drug of choice, I have to tell you that my drug of choice is alcohol because I drank alcoholically and I chose not to. I smoked pot in college 
but the idea of getting arrested scared me, so I chose not to smoke pot again. <clears throat> I have chosen not to eat over and over and over, and I still continue to eat. It is a drug of no choice. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. I got my master's when I was in relapse. I can make some crap happen. But when it comes to this food addiction, I have no willpower. Other areas of my life, I do. I don't have it here. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory and the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against that first strength. So we are unable at certain times. That's where it confused me. And this is my personal experience. This is where the tools confuse me. Because sometimes I would do a 90 and 90 and I could stay abstinent. But then day 91, I would pick up. I would relapse and say, Kim, you're not making enough phone calls. So I'd make more phone calls and the phone calls would work until they stopped working. Getting a new food plan would be exciting enough. It would keep me abstinent and then it would stop. And what happens is the more that my disease progresses, those at certain times become less and less and I become more and more frustrated because why did it work in 1994 when I first came in but it's not working in 2000 and it's not working in 2005. And the last line was you just saying, we were without defense against the first drink. I really thought I was without defense against the third donut. Teach me, that's what I wanted you to, I didn't want to stop eating when I came into OA. I wanted to stop suffering. I wanted you to teach me how can I have three Oreos and be satisfied. And what I had to understand was if I have this allergy, I cannot have one. My body doesn't care why I have it or what caloric content it is. It's going to have a reaction. So I'm going to go back to page 23 for a minute. The top of the page, it says these observations, the observations of the allergy, would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. I don't come to Overeaters Anonymous because of the allergy. I come to Overeaters Anonymous because of the mental twist. The main problem is in the mind. I think of the silly analogy. If I have a really severe reaction to poison ivy, but I love to hike, what I do is I get protective clothing so all my body parts are covered. I know what poison ivy looks like and I avoid it. And I enjoy the sunshine and the sounds of nature and the, the, just the freedom of being out in, out in nature. Am I insane because I have an allergy to poison ivy? No. But what if I have an allergy to poison ivy and I take all those protective gears and all of a sudden my mind locks into the boy, that poison ivy is nice. Wow, look at that poison ivy. That's really nice poison ivy. What does what the poison ivy taste like? What do what, what it feels like? And suddenly I strip to my underwear and I jump in the poison ivy and I roll around in it. <laughs> That's crazy. Isn't that what I do? I learn the consequences of the food. I get educated on it, but my mind locks into the idea, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And then I roll around in the food. That is my insanity. I had to see personally, the powerlessness was not just when I was in the food. The big part for me is the powerlessness is when I am in the, the uh, mental twist, when I am sober. Because if I think the powerlessness is only when I'm eating, that I'm gonna get, start to think I have power when I'm sober and I'm going to go back to the food over and over and over. So let's finish up on page 25 at the bottom of the page 25. 
It says, if you are as seriously alcoholic as we were, believe there is no middle of the road solution. So seriously alcoholic as we were means do you have the allergy to the body? Do you have the mental twist? I so easily would say, well, you know what? I, I was a size 24. You know, I was never a size 26. You know, I, I only threw up five times a day. I had sorority sisters that threw up 10 times a day. I would say that, you know, I, if I don't have the consequences someone else has, I don't have to do what they do. But seriously, alcoholic means do I have, am, am I in this trap of the allergy to the body and the mental obsession? And what is the middle of the road solution? Middle of the road solution is just doing the tools. A middle of the road solution is just going to meetings. A middle of the road solution is, is thinking that guy's gonna save me. Or if I spend enough money in a gym that I'm gonna be okay. Or if I get dull vet as a, as a trainer on Biggest Loser, I'm gonna be okay. That would solve other problems, but it wouldn't solve my food problem. So it says, we were, we were in a position where life was becoming impossible and if we pass into the region from which there is no return from human aid. We had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other was to accept spiritual help. What I had to understand was the intolerable situation was not being in the food. If that's true, then abstinence would solve that. The intolerable situation was being sober, restless, irritable, discontent, uncomfortable in my own skin. And when I'm at that place, which I was many times in Overeaters Anonymous, I have two alternatives. Not choice, alternatives. I'm going one way or the other. I'm either going to blot out the consciousness, which is to pick up the food, or I'm going to go for spiritual help, which is to pick up the steps. Gratefully, eight years ago, I wanted spiritual help just a tad bit more than I wanted out to blot, the, blot out the consciousness. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Claire. Hi, everyone. I'm Claire. I'm a compulsive reader. Thank you. <laughs> Hi there. Uh, I'm going to be covering Bill's story, found on page one in this size book. I don't know what version this is. Um, and I'll be like quickly going through it, um, relating uh, my experience with uh, his story also. So the first page of Bill's story, I'm like, yeah, 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 I don't really relate to that. Next page. <laughs> you know, so I wasn't in the war. I wasn't full of high hopes about my, making my mark on the world. Page two really jumps out to me. I'd prove to the world I'm important. So, oh, there's something in me that responded to that. Um, so that whole thing of a chip on my shoulder, and I have no power, and I'm going to get power, and I'll show you all, blankety, blankety, blank. Um, so Bill came up in a broken home, which I didn't know when reading this, but he was a bright guy. He was a resourceful guy. Uh, he was a creative person, and he was also very driven, driven and egotistical. So that egotistical slash inferiority complex of I'll show them. And that drive, that thing of like, I'm going to show you how it's done. And he does. You know, this is the part I don't relate to again, is that he makes his mark on the world. So on page three, for the next few years, fortune through money applause my way. I had arrived. Well, that never happened in my story, as you'll see later. But I really thought if I had arrived, now maybe my arrival wasn't making it on you know, Wall Street, being a speculator, or like you know, 
having the big cars and flashy homes. <coughs> that was not my vision of what a rival is. My rival would be like more like being in the salon in the 1920s, having intellectual conversations and like having those long cigarettes. <laughs> you know, gender equality and ideas of gender and sexuality are just open and accepted. And the most important thing is that you're interesting and you have something, you know, there's interesting banter and, you know, the pursuit of art and literature. You know, that would be my idea of arrived. Um, so that was his idea if he arrived, and he did. And then he had all these friends. So, you know, the Fairweather friends. Okay, so I'm like, yeah, Fairweather friends. We'll see how that works out. So he was in the world. He was off the bench. He was in the game. And he was winning. I mean, from anybody's, you know, opinion, he was winning. He was doing it. And then, God forbid, you know, the crash hits. Now, this is when a series of, like, unfortunate incidents start happening. You know, and I will be the first to say, if I had to live through this, I would just be like, oh, in my family, we call it another sad story. I'm Irish Catholic. And, you know, we live for when we get together, we don't talk about what's going right. We talk about who is, you know, who's on the brink of death on a, on a banana peel, who just cheated, who, but, you know, it, we bond over the negativity. So all of these calamities that incur as a result of, you know, historical things that happen, the crash, and this happened, then that person died, and the other person died, and they were just about to get it together, and then some other bullshit happens, right? Excuse my French, sorry, people. Um, but the truth is, is that I would be very focused on the hard breaks. Well, no wonder he's drinking. You know, look at how life is just... You know, he's really trying. He's really resourceful. Him and his wife, Lois, they're like throwing their things, going cross country. He is a go, go up and get a guy. You know, he's like not full of self-pity. He's going to make it happen no matter what with all these tremendous challenges that were outside of his control. All right, so I'm thinking, okay, you know, of course he's going to indulge. Look at what's happening. But what's happening is that you know, even when external circumstances start to turn around, and he's like this close from like just pulling it out one more time, pulling the rabbit out, he blows it. And then you see a man who is really uh, full of self-sufficiency, full of intelligence, full of charm. You know, at least charm, external charm. What happened behind closed doors was pretty dark, actually. But being able to navigate, and me as a uh, introverted food addict, which spent my life behind closed doors. I was not out in the world. You know, if I was out in the world, I'm like on the sidelines saying, ugh, must be nice. Ugh, you know, like that's my sarcastic, um, you know, people who are actually in the game, functioning on the game. I'm on the benches. You know, I'm probably smoking cigarettes behind the benches saying what assholes these people are who think they're so great. You know, oh, good, you go win your game. You know, I'm going to go have my Cheetos and F you, you know. Um, so it's somebody who was winning the game. They weren't under the bleachers. They weren't on the bleachers. They were in the game. They were had the personality. They were, you know, this is all I thought, like, if only I had the breaks you had, I wouldn't have to eat. I wouldn't, I'd have a good life. You know, um, and then something starts to happen, and the progression of the illness starts to happen. And somebody who has a tremendous, um, you know, Bill had depression, you know, had anxiety, had relentless depression, whether he was drinking or not drinking. 
You know, he was also very intelligent. So I relate to all of that. I relate to being, I have so much information about myself and the world and I'm unable to do anything with any of it. <laughs> I can't get out of my bedroom. All I can do is like binge Netflix and like, you know, hope for sleep. Um, so he got the uh, spoils of the world, life in form. You know, he was winning at the game, but something's happening. His addiction, whether he was using or not using, is progressing. And then something happens called the disable, disabling of the will. When you lose disable of the will, and what I imagine it as is like the guy or woman who's being drugged through town with one foot in the holster and you're just along for the ride. And if you've ever been along for the ride in your addiction where you are eating and you know what's gonna happen and you know you're doing it and you're just like, I'm along for the ride. You know, I am not able to stop this. And, um, you know, the desperate desire to stop, like page seven, this guy had a lot of self-discipline. His wife had a lot of self-discipline to like save money, quit jobs, like, you know, really, you know, just do courageous, brave, crazy things at times. But they had a lot of self-sufficiency and self-direction. And then it starts changing where, when I really actually do have a desire to quit and that you go to that well to get your bootstraps up and you're holding your bootstraps, it's not working anymore. So the disabled will starts kicking in and then the demoralization and the degrading and it's a slow walk. So everything before this is like this fast whirlwind, you know, and believe me, if I got any of that, I would, I don't know that I'd ever come to the rooms. Because I so was focused on the spoils of the world that, um, you know, God forbid I, anything worked out for me, I'd have no use for any spirituality. Like, no, like, I'm not interested. Um, you know, I came up in a very restrictive uh, religious family and a very uh, restrictive thing about what boys, girl, what boys do, what girls do. There was a lot of, like, it was a, you know, tight ship. So I was not really into um, joining or being part of. So, um, you know, there was a lot of chip on my shoulder. And so did Bill. Bill was not a fan of religion. He, was antith he had an antipathy towards the subject of God, you know, so we'll talk about that. Um, but on page eight, something really struck a note with me. The lonely, uh, on second paragraph, no words can tell of the loneliness and spare I found in the bitter morass of self-pity. So when I pick up food, you know, my body swings 50 pounds, 60 pounds, one way or the other. When I pick up food, something happens and I get really dark, you know. So when I say I'm in the bondage of self, my bondage of self can be eating or not eating. My bondage of self is complete that I'm on Claire Power and I have a very good, um, you know, reason to be afraid of that because of how it usually ends. But the bitter morass of self-pity and how, like, disabling that is. Um, fear sober be a bit. So keep in mind, I, there is, like, a certain propulsion to addiction. And there's a certain, like, uh, way to go into the world. I don't understand how people just wake up and go do their life like I don't get it like obsession to get you know obsessed with something is how I function so um you know even I would like
get to the edge of something, get really bad, and then I know I'd snap out of it, and then I'd turn it around. You know, I'm like the comeback kid. I like that. But then that stops working. And then, like, fear stops working. Um, then this, the, the, it's interesting that his buddy comes over. Because I do have a very high uh, value on friendship and people who can be friends and people who are able to see me. And that's um, not a thing that I take lightly. So, um, you know, his drinking buddy came by. And, you know, he's like, huh, you look different. And he didn't have to say, like, you know, what it was, but he said he's got religion. And as soon as you say that, I'm like, ugh. <laughs> Not for me. Count me out. Like, I'm always like, that's nice for you. Okay? Move along. Um, I have a, I definitely have a chip on my shoulder about religion. Um, I definitely have a chip on my shoulder about a lot of things. But you would never know it because I'm smiling all the time. And I'm very, um, if anybody, you know, would know me in my world, I'm very helpful. I'm very um, compliant. I'm not a wave maker. So I'm, I don't look like, um, you know, beer muscles and swinging. So the, the personality of the alcoholic is more out there, inflicting into the world. The personality of this food addict is more um, the sidelines, the snipes, the side remarks, the, the envy, the um, must be nice. You know that type of thing um, so there's a certain there's a, a rule following thing about my being a food addict like I'm gonna be a good girl and good things will happen uh, and then when it doesn't you know I'm going to be very sideways very covert uh, very uh, people pleasing and lack of power but um, so the thing I had to like really uh, relate to and I am a hard drinker so I have an addicted body when it comes to alcohol. And what that looks like, it, and it is confusing sometimes to outsiders to, have, to say you're a hard drinker, a hard eater, because on the outside it can look the same. Mm -hmm. So once a month I'll drink, I'll be in a blackout for three days, and I'll be asked to leave many places. But I cannot do it for 30 days. Um, once I got that information that the circumstances were going to be dire, I stopped and I, re I, I got that, that I can't do that. Not with food. Um, I've been in the rooms for 30 years plus. Most of it uh, doing my Claire program, which is like <laughs> I will do many different things, which you'll find out in the next um, chapter. But I really wasn't interested in not eating. So... Um, <laughs> I, would, I liked everything else except the not eating part. Um, so there's certain things in here about Bill's thing about, um, on page 12. Why don't you choose your own conception of God? And are you even willing to believe? So um, it's really important, these two words about desire and decision. I never have the desire to do any of this. <laughs> the only thing I seem to naturally have a desire to do is watch Netflix, to eat. I have a desire to sleep, but that doesn't happen. Um, you know, maybe a few other things, mostly hedonistic pursuits. That's really the only thing I naturally desire. Desire for me does not come. Like when they say I have a decision, make a decision to turn my will and life over to care of God, and my, I understood him. I have no desire to do that. I don't even know if I believe in God, okay? And that stopped me for so long. I don't even know. And I may not even know until I get to the other side. Either way. Doesn't mean I can't do it. So that was like 
a tricky thing for me. Well, I don't even know if any of this will work, and I don't even know. So let me just stay on the sidelines and not do anything, because you can't even really prove to me. Nobody said I had to believe. I had to believe that it's possible, you know. So that actually gets me in the game of actually working a program. Do I believe that it's even possible? So on page 13, you know, the third step prayer, I humbly offered myself to God as I understood God to do with him as he would. I placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction. I admitted for the first time that of myself I am nothing. Without him I was lost. I ruthlessly faced my sins and became willing to have a newfound friend take them away root and branch. I have not had a drink since. So, you know, I had to drop my prejudice against the idea of God. I had to drop my prejudice against religion. I had to drop my fixed ideas. And the truth is, if I was, if I was succeeding in the world and having this like, great time of it, I really don't need to drop any fixed ideas because I'm like having a good time of life. I was not having a good time of life for much of my life. So I had to be open that maybe all of my ideas or my opinions, maybe I could be open to hear other opinions. The only reason I was able to put down the food is that I was being willing to, um, when I put down the food, I'm able to receive new information. When I'm eating the food, I'm not able to receive any information because as soon as I pick up the food, it's like, I'm screwed, I'm screwed, it's hopeless. So the bottom of page 13 talks about having to test their thinking of this new God consciousness. Now, it literally feels like that right now. I just feel like, huh. I don't know if this is real, but okay, I'll play along. Let's try this. I'm going to wake up in the morning and do as they suggest. Sit for 20 minutes and, you know, try to connect with something that I don't know is there. But I'm going to do it. I'm going to follow direction. For anybody who has seen me in the rooms for 30 years, I was not really open to following all direction. You know, I'd be like, yeah, but I'm different, dot, dot, dot. And this is how different I am. Um... But I'm actually following direction, and it's saying, you know, ask for help, because I can't do this, and then assume that help is coming, and behave that help is with you. So as you go through the day, to look at your thoughts. So meditation, you know, in this context of the 12th step, is directed thinking. So it is connect and inspire my thinking because I have this brain that just thinks and thinks and thinks and I am really a thinker. Um, so I'm asking to be, have my brain directed in my interactions out into the world. Page 14, second paragraph there. Simple but not easy. A price had to be paid. It meant destruction of self-centeredness. Now this is me eating or not eating. So destruction of self-centeredness. And, you know, I'd be the first to tell you, I'm a nice person. You know, I'm really not self-centered. I just want what's good for you and what's good for me. But the truth is, upon, you know, deeper uh, look, you know, it's really important for me to have the persona of this nice person to get what I want in the world. Um, and now it was saying that... Um, these are, you know, these were re revolutionary and drastic proposals the moment I fully accepted them. And even though I've heard these words, words many times, when I actually accept it, like, wait, you want, like, I'm sitting here for 30 years. It's not like I was out, 
you know, at 7-Eleven kicking up my heels and like, eh, screw you, away. Like, no, I'm sitting in the rooms. And when I actually, it actually occurred to me, I'm like, wait, what? You want me to do what? Like, <laughs> like where was I when you said, you want me to live my life as God is directing me and not pick up? Do you know how I live? Like, do you actually want me to, you actually believe this stuff? So, like, when I put down the food, the reality of, like, oh, this is actually a spiritual program, which I heard, like, over here. Like, I heard it from, like, another room. Like, the TV was on in the other room. And now I'm like, no, this is all that's happening here. This is a spiritual program, and it's going to do for me what I cannot do. Um, so, on top of page, uh, what is this, 15. Spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others. He could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. So it's not like you come in, you put down the food, and we're going to promise you a rose garden. Life, you know, I had to really get clear about, like, um, who to go for what. Like, what are 12 steps to be used for? Like, 12 steps cannot deliver me from the world of form. Life in the world of form is people will sometimes do well sometimes not do well financially people will die people will be sick there will be calamity this is this is life for the world of form 12 steps cannot deliver me from that and really you know god or whoever can't even deliver me from that netflix can't even deliver me from that and they're and i'm really putting a dent in it but um there is certain pain in the world what can deliver me is the suffer. This actually relieves me from the suffering of being a food addict. Um, talks up at the middle of page 15, last paragraph, the joy of living. I don't know what that is. I have no idea what they are talking about there. And it talks on the page 16, the vast amount of fun and levity. Okay. But underneath it. So that's, that is what attracts me is the joy of living. Because uh, I'm more about uh, life being hard. Life is hard, you know. But I'm, I grew up and was born and bred on, you know, life sucks, then you die. You might as well just, like, go, go for it. Whatever you got to go for, we're all stuck, you know. And I grew up in addiction. It didn't look like addiction to outsiders, but I have a whole family full of addicts. But there was this under, you know, under uh, current of, Nothing changes, so get comfortable. Mm -hmm. Nothing's going to change, least of all me. Now, I'm going to switch gears and go into more about alcoholism. Page 30 in this size book. <clears throat> so, what do I know about alcoholism? Well, you know, the obvious stuff or the food stuff is, uh, you know, I'm fat, all right? <laughs> That's all I knew, is I'm fat, I don't want to be fat. And if I wasn't fat, then I would have this other, you know, extroverted personality, I'd be charming, ha ha ha. I'd be like, you know, have money in the bank, I would buy stuff, you know, it's just like all this thing about I was fat, you know, that was it. So my understanding of the problem was I eat too much, I'm fat, and then you know, I spent a lot of money buying like four different size clothes, um, and that's why I'm, you know, financially crazy. But the truth of the matter is, I didn't understand the problem. So when Kim was talking about the true nature of the problem, I didn't understand the problem to begin with. I thought my life sucked. 
I thought, if only I was, if only, and I cannot tell you the amount of time and effort, if only I didn't grow up the way I grew up, you know, my life would have been different. It really would have. But that's called fantasy land. And I, you know, it really might not have been different because there are many people in here who've had like carefree childhoods, extroverted personalities, you know, they are mastering life in the form and they are food addicts and they are trapped as I am trapped, you know. So um, I will talk about the progressive illness. So on page 30, towards the middle of the bottom of the page, we are in the grip, our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. Over any period of time, we get worse, never better. So what that means to me, top of page 31, second paragraph, it says, every form of self-deception and experimentation, which I'm a huge experimenter. I love trying uh, different ways to control this. They will try to prove themselves exceptions to the rule, therefore non-alcoholic. So what are some of my things? Countless vein, well, I've been away for a million years, um, learning so much. I've, I was not a good dieter. I have to tell you, I've been dieting since I was about eight years old. I was not a good dieter. Um, certainly did diet pills, exercise rarely. That's really not my thing. Really into lots of therapy, like therapy, uh, like medication, usually for the wrong reasons. So I'm not like anti-medication if you need medication. What I'm into is I need to find the right therapist, the right medication, the right workshop, the right new age therapy, the right yoga practice so I can stop eating. And none of that stuff is designed to do any of the above. That doesn't stop me though. <laughs> um, big reader of self-help books. I was in food rehab for 28 days, and two days later I picked up. Uh, I had gastric sleeve surgery. I didn't have that years ago when I didn't know better. I had that like eight years ago when I knew better. I had it and thought like one, you know, last ditch effort. Um, you know, one of my exes is in the room here, and she was with me when I was had gastric sleeve surgery. This is like a horrible, embarrassing, uh, story but you know I sent her after that surgery to the store to get me four things one of the most important things on that list was fudgicles mm -hmm. you know sugar-free fudgicles she came home like two hours later I thought maybe it was an hour later <laughs> she spent three hundred dollars worth of food you know all good food she did not get the correct fudgicles okay <laughs> and I was like, I asked you to do one thing. <laughs> one thing. That's all I asked. And when I tell you, I was, I was enraged. I don't even get angry. I'm not like, I'm like a, like the, I'm like a flat line. I'm Irish Catholic. We don't have access to like many emotions other than, you know, sarcasm. But like, when I say I had access to rage, and I had access, I was gripping the wall, like Glenn Close in like, what was that, the big chill or something? Gripping the wall in the shower, sobbing, that how could she fuck, excuse me, that up and not get the right fudgicles? Like, I have cried over that. I was like, wow, that is like, I just altered my body. I don't even know if I'm gonna be able to, you know, have regular digestion. Um, and I'm just like freaking out because I don't have the proper, you know, food I need to get through this day. So um, that's pretty crazy. So looking for like, 
jobs, uh, relationships, everything to, to be the, the fix that was going to be the fix. And I definitely relate to the guy named Jim who had a f- series of calamity. I'm like, of course, that's me. Life was hard. Of course I'm going to use. Fred, I'm like, Fred is somebody I would gossip about. I'd be like, Fred, what's his problem? He's got it made. He's got a good job. He's doing great. Look at him. He's, I would totally gossip. I would totally talk about Fred behind his back. Um, because I thought I was, the reason I was eating was circumstantial. I wasn't understanding the reason why I was eating is once I ingest the food. Now, I did understand that once I ingested, once I finally got that, okay, I can't eat certain things, then I'll be okay. Then this whole other level of surrender happened of like, I'm not okay, even when I'm not eating. I'm not okay. I don't want to go to work because I can't, I'm afraid of what's happening. I'm afraid of people. I'm afraid of economic insecurity. I wake up at two o'clock in the morning in a cold sweat. Um, I'm too serious, you know. Um, so me eating or not eating is a problem. And sometimes especially not eating is a problem. When I'm eating, I'm just like a flat line and my emotions are like muted. I'm mostly just sleeping. But when I'm not eating, I'm like driven and realize that I don't know how to live life. I really have no idea about how to work and how to work with coworkers. I have no idea how to be in a family. I have no idea how to have relationships. Like, so I'm actually having to pray to be molded to these ideals that, um, you know, that self, self, uh, selfishness, self-seeking to get away from that, to live life. So I don't need to eat. So I don't need relief from my life. So, um, you know, it's just, it's amazing. Um, one of the things of, I'm just, you know, that like, Living in addiction is like uh, ego-driven, and it's a, like a no-win game. There's just no winning at it. There's just no winning at it. Fill in the blank. If you're X enough, then I will be okay. Mm. There's no winning at it. Like, go home. Game over. This is called life of the spirit, the fourth dimension. And to even get in the game of this, I have to not eat. To even be able to see what I'm doing to lean up against the dimmer switch and try to increase my awareness through spiritual connection that I believe in or not believe in on any given day. But I'm willing to do the footwork and it's helping, my life is getting better. Um, you know, I still have, it's not perfect, but I'm still like functioning, um, living a life um, in the world and you know, not, miserable and not consumed with myself and what I can get out of it. So uh, I think that's all I have. Thanks. Thank you.